Book Two, Chapter Thirteen of Henrietta Temple. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Capricia Page. Henrietta Temple by Benjamin Disraeli. Book Two, Chapter Thirteen in which Captain Armine finds reason to believe in the existence of fairies. It is difficult to describe the restlessness of Ferdinand Armine. His solitary dinner was an excuse for quitting Glastonbury, but to eat is as impossible as to sleep for a man who is really in love. He took a spoonful of soup, and then jumping up from his chair, he walked up and down the room, thinking of Henrietta Temple. Then to-morrow occurred to him, and that other lady that to-morrow was to bring. He drowned the thought in a bumper of claret. Wine, mighty wine, thou best and surest consolation! What care can withstand thy inspiring influence? From what scrape canst thou not for a moment extricate the victim? Who can deny that our spiritual nature in some degree depends on our corporeal condition. A man without breakfast is not a hero. A hero well fed is full of audacious invention. Everything depends upon the circulation. But let the blood flow freely, and a man of imagination is never without resources. A fine pulse is a talisman, a charmed life, a balance at our bankers. It is good luck. It is eternity. It is wealth. Nothing can withstand us. Nothing injure us. It is inexhaustible riches. So felt Ferdinand Armine, though on the verge of a moral precipice. Tomorrow. What of tomorrow? Did tomorrow daunt him? Not a jot. He would wrestle with tomorrow laden as it might be with cares, and dash it to the earth. It should not be a day. He would blot it out of the calendar of time. He would effect a moral eclipse of its influence. He loved Henrietta Temple. She would be his. Who could prevent him? Was he not an Armine? Was he not the near descendant of that bold man who passed his whole life in a voluptuous indulgence of his unrestrained volition? Bravo! He willed it, and it should be done. Everything yields to determination. What a fool! What a miserable craven fool had he been to have frightened himself with the flimsy shadows of petty worldly cares! He was born to follow his own pleasure. It was supreme. It was absolute. He was a despot. He set everything and everybody at defiance, and filling a huge tumbler to the health of the great Sir Ferdinand, he retired, glorious as an emperor. On the whole, Ferdinand had not committed so great an indiscretion as the reader, of course shocked, might at first imagine. For the first time for some days he slept, and slept soundly. Next to wine, a renovating slumber perhaps puts us in the best humor with our destiny. 
Ferdinand awoke, refreshed and sanguine, full of inventive life, which soon developed itself into a flow of improbable conclusions. His most rational scheme, however, appeared to consist in winning Henrietta Temple, and turning pirate, or engaging in the service of some distant and disturbed state. Why might he not free Greece, or revolutionize Spain, or conquer the Brazils? Others had embarked in these bold enterprises, men not more desperate than himself, and not better qualified for the career. Young, courageous, a warrior by profession, with a name of traditionary glory throughout the courts of Christendom, perhaps even remembered in Asia. He seemed just the individual to carve out a glorious heritage with his sword. And as for his parents, they were not in the veil of years. Let them dream on in easy obscurity, and maintain themselves at Armine until he returned to redeem his hereditary domain. All that was requisite was the concurrence of his adored mistress. Perhaps after all his foolish fears and all his petty anxiety, he might live to replace upon her brow the ancient coronet of Tewkesbury. Why not? The world is strange. Nothing happens that we anticipate. When apparently stifled by the commonplace, we are on the brink of stepping into the adventurous. If he married Miss Grandison, his career was closed. A most unnatural conclusion for one so young and bold. It was evident that he must marry Henrietta Temple. And then? Why, then something should happen totally unexpected and unforeseen. Who could doubt it? Not he. He rose, he mounted his horse, and galloped over to Ducie Common. Its very aspect melted his heart. He called at the cottages he had visited two days before, without inquiring after Miss Temple. He contrived to hear a thousand circumstances related to her which interested and charmed him. In the distance rose the woods of Ducie. He gazed upon them as if he could never withdraw the sight from their deep and silent forms. Oh, what sweet bower! Why was there any other world but Ducie? All his brave projects of war and conquest and imperial plunder seemed dull and vain now. He sickened at the thought of action. He sighed to gather roses, to listen to songs sweeter than the nightingale and wander forever in moonlit groves. He turned his horse's head. Slowly and sorrowfully he directed his course to Armine. Had they arrived? The stern presence of reality was too much for all his slight and glittering visions. What was he after all? This future conqueror was a young officer on leave obscure except in his immediate circle, with no inheritance and very much in debt, awaited with anxiety by his affectionate parents and a young lady whom he was about to marry for her fortune. Most impotent epilogue to a magnificent reverie. The post arrived at Armine in the afternoon. As Ferdinand, nervous as a child returning to school, tardily regained home, 
he recognized the approaching postman. Ah, a letter! What was its import? The blessing of delay? Or was it the herald of their instant arrival? Pale and sick at heart, he tore open the hurried lines of Catherine. The maiden aunt had stumbled while getting out of a pony phaeton, and experienced a serious accident. Their visit to Armine was necessarily postponed. He read no more. The color returned to his cheek, reinforced by his heart's liveliest blood. A thousand thoughts, a thousand wild hopes and wilder plans came over him. Here was, at least, one interposition in his favor. Others would occur. He felt fortunate. He rushed to the tower to tell the news to Glastonbury. His tutor ascribed his agitation to the shock, and attempted to console him. In communicating the intelligence he was obliged to finish the letter, it expressed a hope that if their visit were postponed more than a day or two, Catherine's dearest Ferdinand would return to Bath. Ferdinand wandered forth into the park to enjoy his freedom. A burden had suddenly fallen from his frame. A cloud that had haunted his vision had vanished. Today that was so accursed was to be marked now in his calendar with red chalk. Even Armine pleased him. Its sky was brighter, its woods more vast and green. They had not arrived. They would not arrive tomorrow, that was certain. The third day, too, was a day of hope. Why, three days, three whole days of unexpected, unhoped-for freedom. It was eternity. What might not happen in three days? For three days he might fairly remain in expectation of fresh letters. It could not be anticipated. It was not even desired that he should instantly repair to them. Come, he would forget this curse. He would be happy. The past, the future, should be nothing. He would revel in the auspicious present. Thus communing with himself, he sauntered along, musing over Henrietta Temple and building bright castles in the air. A man engaged with his ideas is insensible of fatigue. Ferdinand found himself at the park gate that led to Ducie, intending only a slight stroll. He had already rambled half-way to his beloved. It was a delicious afternoon. The heat of the sun had long abated. The air was sweet and just beginning to stir. Not a sound was heard except the last blow of a woodman's axe, or the occasional note of some joyous bird waking from its siesta. Ferdinand passed the gate. He entered the winding road, the road that Henrietta Temple had so admired. A beautiful green lake with banks of flowers and hedges of tall trees. He strolled along, our happy Ferdinand, indefinite of purpose, almost insensible whether he were advancing or returning home. He plucked the wild flowers. He pressed them to his lips, because she had admired them, rested on the bank, lounged on a gate, cut a stick from the hedge, traced Henrietta Temple in the road, and then turned the words into Henrietta Armine. And so, and so, and so, he at length, stared at finding himself on Ducie Common. Beautiful Common! 
How he loved it! How familiar every tree and rustic roof had become to him! Could he ever forget the morning he had bathed in those fresh waters? What lake of Italy, what heroic wave of the Midland Ocean, could rival in his imagination that simple basin? He drew near to the woods of Ducey, glowing with the setting sun. Surely there was no twilight like the twilight of this land. The woods of Ducey are entered. He recognized the path over which she had glided. He knelt down and kissed that sacred earth. As he approached the pleasure grounds, he turned off and into a side path that he might not be perceived. He caught through a vista a distant glimpse of the mansion. The sight of that roof wherein he had been so happy, of that roof that contained all that he cared for or thought of in this world overcame him. He leant against a tree and hid his face. The twilight died away. The stars stole forth, and Ferdinand ventured into the spreading gloom of night to approach the mansion. He drew himself upon the turf, and watched the chamber where she lived. The windows were open. There were lights within the room, but the thin curtains were drawn and concealed the inmates. Happy, happy chamber! All that was bright and fair and sweet were contained in those charming walls. The curtain is withdrawn. An arm, an arm which cannot be mistaken, pulls back the drapery. Is she coming forth? No, she does not. But he sees, distinctly he sees her. She sits in an old chair that he had often praised. Her head rests upon her arm. Her brow seems pensive and in her other hand she holds a volume that she scarcely appears to read. Oh, may he gaze upon her for ever! May this celestial scene, this seraphic hour, never pass away! Bright stars do not fade. Thou summer wind, that playest upon his brow, perfumed by her flowers, refresh him for ever! Beautiful night be for ever the canopy of a scene so sweet and still. Let existence glide away in gazing on yon delicate and tender vision. Dreams of fantastic love, the curtain closes. A ruder hand than hers has shut her from his sight. It has all vanished. The stars seem dim, the autumnal air is dank and harsh. And where he had gazed on heaven, a bat flits wild and fleet. Poor Ferdinand, unhappy Ferdinand, how dull and depressed our brave gallant has become. Was it her father who had closed the curtain? Could he himself, thought Ferdinand, have been observed? Hark! A voice softer and sweeter than the night breaks upon the air. It is the voice of his beloved. And indeed, with all her singular and admirable qualities, there was not anything more remarkable about Henrietta Temple than her voice. It was a rare voice, so that in speaking and in ordinary conversation, though there was no one whose utterance was more natural and less unstudied, it forcibly affected you. She could not give you a greeting, bid you an adieu, or make a routine remark, without impressing you with her power and sweetness. 
It sounded like a bell, sweet and clear and thrilling. It was astonishing what an influence a little word uttered by this woman, without thought, would have upon those she addressed. Of such a fine clay is man made. That beautiful voice recalled to Ferdinand all his fading visions. It renewed the spell which had recently enchanted him. It conjured up all those sweet spirits that had a moment since hovered over him with their auspicious pinions. He could not indeed see her. Her form was shrouded, but her voice reached him, a voice attuned to tenderness, even to love, a voice that ravished his ear, melted his soul, and blended with his whole existence. His heart fluttered, his pulse beat high. He sprang up, he advanced to the window. Yes, a few paces alone divided them, a single step, and he will be at her side. His hand is outstretched to clutch the curtain, his—when suddenly the music ceased. His courage vanished with its inspiration. For a moment he lingered, but his heart misgave him, and he stole back to his solitude. What a mystery is love! All the necessities and habits of our life sink before it. Food and sleep, that seem to divide our being as day and night divide time lose all their influence over the lover. He is a spiritualized being, fit only to live upon ambrosia and slumber in an imaginary paradise. The cares of the world do not touch him. Its most stirring events are to him but the dusty incidents of bygone annals. All the fortune of the world without his mistress's misery and with her all its mischances a transient dream. Revolutions, earthquakes, the change of governments, the fall of empires are to him but childish games, distasteful to a manly spirit. Men love in the plague and forget the pest, though it rages about them. They bear a charmed life and think not of destruction until it touches their idol and then they die without a pang, like zealots for their persecuted creed. A man in love wanders in the world as a somnambulist, with eyes that seem open to those that watch him, yet in fact view nothing but their own inward fancies. Oh, that night at Ducie, through those long hours Ferdinand Armine, in a tumult of enraptured passion, wandered in its lawns and groves, feeding on the image of its enchanting mistress, watching the solitary light in her chamber, that was to him as the pharaohs to a mariner, in a tumultuous voyage. That morning, the grey cold morning came at last. He had outwatched the stars, and listened to the matins of the waking birds. It was no longer possible to remain in the gardens unobserved. He regained the commons. What should he do? Whither should he wind his course? To Armine? Oh, not to Armine. Never could he return to Armine without the heart of Henrietta Temple. Yes, on that great venture he had now resolved. On that mighty hazard all should now be staked. 
Reckless of consequences, one vast object now alone sustained him. Existence without her was impossible. Aye, a day, a day, a single, a solitary day, should not elapse without his breathing to her his passion, and seeking his fate from her dark eyes. He strolled along to the extremity of the common. It was a great table-land, from whose boundary you look down on small rich valleys, and into one of these, winding his way through fields and pastures, of which the fertile soil was testified by their vigorous hedgerows, he now descended. A long, low farmhouse, with gable ends and ample porch, an antique building that in old days might have been some manorial residence, attracted his attention. Its picturesque form, its angles and twisted chimneys, its porch covered with jessamine and eglantine, its verdant homestead, and its orchard rich with ruddy fruit, its vast barns and long lines of ample stacks, produced altogether a rural picture complete and cheerful. Near to a stream, which Ferdinand followed, and which, after a devious and rapid course, emptied itself into a deep and capacious pool. Touched by the early sunbeam, and grateful to the swimmer's eye. Here, Ferdinand made his natural toilet, and afterwards, slowly returning to the farmhouse, sought an agreeable refuge from the sun in its fragrant porch. The farmer's wife, accompanied by a pretty daughter with downcast eyes, came forth and invited him to enter. While he courteously refused her offer, he sought her hospitality. The good wife brought a table and placed it in the porch, and covered it with a napkin purer than snow. Her viands were fresh eggs, warm milk from the cow, and bread she had herself baked. Even a lover might feed on such sweet food. This happy valley and this cheerful settlement wonderfully touched the fancy of Ferdinand. The season was mild and sunny, the air scented by the flowers that rustled in the breeze. The bees soon came to rifle their sweetness, and the flights of white and blue pigeons over and anon skimmed along the sky from the neighboring gables that were their dove-coats. Ferdinand made a salutary, if not a plenteous, meal, and went, and when the table was removed, exhausted by the fatigue and excitement of the last four-and-twenty hours, he stretched himself at full length in the porch, and fell into a gentle and dreamless slumber. Hours elapsed before he awoke, vigorous indeed, and wonderfully refreshed, but the sun had already greatly declined. To his astonishment as he moved, there fell from his breath a beautiful nosegay. He was charmed with this delicate attention from his hostess, or perhaps from her pretty daughter, with those downcast eyes. There seemed a refinement about the gift, and the mode of its offering, which scarcely could be expected from these kind yet simple rustics. The flowers, too, were rare and choice. Geraniums, such as are found only in Lady's Bower, a cape jessamine, some musky carnations, and a rose that seemed the sister of the one he had borne from Ducey. They were delicately bound together, too, by a bright blue ribband, fastened by a gold and turquoise pin. This was most strange. This was an adventure more suitable to a Sicilian palace than an English farmhouse to the gardens of a princess than the clustered porch of his kind hostess. 
Ferdinand gazed at the bouquet with a glance of blended perplexity and pleasure. Then he entered the farmhouse and made inquiries of his hostess, but they were fruitless. The pretty daughter with the downcast eyes was there, too, but her very admiration of the gift, so genuine and unrestrained, proved, if testimony indeed were necessary, that she was not his unknown benefactor. Admirer, he would have said, but Ferdinand was in love and modest. All agreed, no one to their knowledge had been there, and so Ferdinand, cherishing his beautiful gift, was fain to quit his new friends in as much perplexity as ever. End of Book Two, Chapter Thirteen Recording by Capricia Page